What do you think is better from a marketing perspective? I don't really see what the benefit of seeing the whole office is. So I guess closer to me is better. They're, they want us, the person's what they care about, right? Today we have a very special guest. We have Nate Streeter. Nate, welcome to the show. What do you do? <laughs> uh, I am the director of marketing and customer experience here at Olive. Um, but primarily what that means is I help our partners with their marketing. That's really what my role has kind of become this year. And so I, right now I actively help about nine of our partners, I think is where I'm at with their marketing each week. What's your origin story? How did you get into marketing? My origin, I guess, depending how far back you want to go, but uh, really my, I guess my origin story about marketing is when I was nine, my family was really struggling and we grew up in kind of a poor neighborhood. And the answer to every problem in my dad's mind was like, work more. <laughs> so when I was nine, he got a paper route. That's what he did when they were, you know, his family was hard up. And so when I was nine, I started doing paper routes with my dad. And that really continued through all the way till my teenage years. And once I got my own, got a license and I bought, saved up enough to buy a, car, uh, a truck, uh, I started hiring my friends to help me with paper routes. And um, like many kids who grew up in a poor neighborhood, I just graduated high school and just kept working. And uh, I, I did flyers and newspapers and all kinds of different things um, to kind of make ends meet. My wife and I got married right out of high school. So I was all of a sudden a, a husband and a dad not that long after that, 21, when we had our first child. And so I started a little business. I didn't really know anything about business, but I knew that I didn't want to work for the people I was working for because they weren't honest always. And so when I was 21, I started a business and it was really focused on flyers. And so I guess to answer your question directly, the process of working with small businesses over the last 20 years has taught me a lot about marketing as I help them with their marketing. In 2001, I started a little flyer delivery business, basically. A lot of our business was still newspapers for the first 10 years. So we really transitioned over those 20 years away from newspapers and more towards direct marketing. I think I started working with you in maybe 2013. That sounds right. Yeah. So I had probably been in business for 12 years at that point. Many of the businesses I work with were large home service businesses. They loved flyers, especially if you can think back to the early 2000s into the yeah. you know 2010s and even. I got to see, and because I was very curious and I was entrepreneurial myself, I, I had pretty deep conversations with many, many of those businesses about what's working, what's not. Because I, I really was just intent on making sure that what we were doing was working and helping them that way. So that is really how a lot of that osmosis basically is how I learned at least some things about marketing. Of course, coming on board here at Olive in 2020, it's been like a crash course over the last three years as I've gotten to see so much more. And of course, now that we have whatever it is, 14 partners or whatever, I'm learning even more because they all have different markets and different messaging and some things work for us, some people, and then we all learn from that. So what is marketing? Marketing is taking uh, a brand or a product, representing it in a way in hopes to affect people's either their feelings or emotions or their actions hopefully right so in painting it would represent a brand in a way to hopefully affect their 
actions. Usually you'd use marketing to get leads, for instance, right? So that's the goal of marketing for most home service businesses. But if you're like Apple, you might be on a very different wavelength. Your, Your marketing is in hopes to make somebody feel a certain way about your brand or product. And that might be the objective. Usually marketing's goal is to make you do something, whether it's feel or act or something towards a brand or product. I typically tell people to make good decisions and not bad decisions. How do you make good decisions in marketing? I think marketing well is positioning a painting company as local and present, uh, particularly if you're selling to consumers. That's what they want. They want a painter near me, a painter in insert yeah. city. They want to work with somebody their neighbor worked with or their family or friend. Mm-hmm. This is all like social and geographic context, which matters local, present. I mean, that's honestly for us. The areas where we're really good at that is where we have the best success with marketing. How do we do that well, local and present? The first thing with all marketing is that you have to have high clarity. Whatever you're doing, whether it's a a post on social media, whether it's your Facebook page in general, whether it's your website, whether it's a postcard, whether it's your local service ads, whatever, right? High amount of clarity is really important. Usually that's the number one mistake I see people make actually is they try to do too much all at once. When we're talking about local present, just choose one thing. So I'm painting your neighbor's house. Like I just painted your neighbor's house. I am the blank painter, like Minneapolis painter or Atlanta painter. Keep that same idea through the whole marketing. Don't try to add new ideas. Like that's usually what. But what if you're really excited about those other ideas? Yeah, you are. Like I know. Like I just want people to know that we do commercial. Right. That we won an award. Right. That. uh, I got to put every service I do on there. What if, what if they don't want, you know? Yeah. What if they, yeah. You know what my grandma always used to say? If you aim for everything, you hit nothing. Mm. So that's pretty much what we learned at, at, you know, too, is that. If we try to make a piece or try to make a a campaign that's focused on everything, it just doesn't work. So focus on a specific thing. You aim for everything, you hit nothing. Right. Okay. That's good wisdom. Are there economies of scale in marketing? (laughs) Yeah, you already know a little bit of what I think of this. I think it's a big misnomer. Like, honestly, this is one of the biggest misnomers for people who haven't done a lot of marketing. And in fact, I feel like, it's aggressively promoted by presidents across the country, like presidents of companies. They have this thought in their mind that as we get bigger, we're going to be able to save money on marketing. But I've never talked to a marketer who believes that in any way, shape or form. So I don't know where they get these ideas from. Virtually every company I work with or have ever worked with, not just in painting, but I'm saying when I own my flyer business, spends more as a percentage of their revenue as they grow. There's only a few exceptions to that. And usually it's an exception because they were like really screwing up before that. Something was really wrong. Like they hired people who had no idea what they're doing or whatever, right? Assuming that isn't the case. And I think it's just the reason there is an economies of scale is pretty simple. The first $500,000 that you did, what percentage of those people do you think were like friends or friends of friends or connected to you? A lot, Right. a lot. Loading fruit, we would call that. Exactly, exactly. So I think that what happens for a lot of businesses is that they grow to a certain point and 
they have all that low hanging fruit. You could also take that low hanging fruit idea beyond just your personal network, which is sort of under, easy to understand. When you do a Google PPC ad, there's low hanging fruit. Yeah. When you do LSA ads, there's low hanging fruit. Flyer delivery, when you anything, like yeah. any single thing, you know, Facebook ads, you know, what I call lead farms, that's like the, the Angie's and the networks and they all have low hanging fruit. So the more leads you need, the more you have to go up in that yeah. chain, if that makes sense. And the more expensive it's going to be. I could see the strong man, the other side of the argument. Well, when I'm much larger, it's going to cost less because I'll have buying power hmm. to buy the marketing tools or whatever. And my brand will be so big that everyone will just know who I am. So mm -hmm. I won't have to market as much. They'll already be branded. That would be the, the hypothesis for people that are not practitioners, but dreamers. I think there are a few situations where I think that potentially could be true, but I don't think it's the way they're thinking. For instance, if your brand is around for a hundred years and let's say 50 of those years, you did over $20 million of business. Like, so you were a big brand for a very long time. Yeah. Do I think that you have some equity in that equation? Heck yeah. yeah. Right. So I think that those are things, but it's very likely that you spent quite a lot of money throughout that process to get there. And it's easy to lose. I think I remember somebody telling me that the average American, like only 10% of the average Americans can remember any home service business. If you ask them. You, I do not remember the name of the person that delivered my last child. Oh God, <laughs> that's a little more important than than uh, who painted or home serviced my house. Yeah, or anybody's house. I mean, I think most Americans could not tell you the name of the person that delivered their child unless it was a family friend. Yeah, and so we have this misnomer of, of course, they'll remember me because I'm so important to right. them. I painted their house for crying out loud. I think the other thing that people don't realize is that large home service brands, while it might seem like they spend less on marketing because perhaps they're doing some of those less outward things, it's often because they're working their own internal lists a lot more. So they actually are spending the money. They're just working their own lists. So they might have three people in the office that are calling past customers constantly. They're doing mailings multiple mailings a month to everybody on their list. And yeah, their list is 40,000 people now because they've been in business for a long time. But yeah. guess what? It still costs a lot of money to mail to 40,000 people. So I just don't think that they understand that, yeah, they're still spending large amounts of money to do what they do. I think most people understand the idea of low-hanging fruit, but do you also understand that it requires more energy and effort to climb farther and farther up the tree. Yeah. And once you strip out the low hanging fruit, now you have the low medium hanging fruit and you have to jump to get that. And now you have to set up a ladder to get to the medium fruit. Well, another to way to think about it would be that the more higher up the tree you get, the better the climbers are. <laughs> so what I mean yeah. by that is like, you know, it's a market share uh, yeah. analogy. So like, yeah. As you gain more market share, the people that you're bumping against are better. And that's a big part of it too. Because everyone who's in that domain, they're, they're not just scooping up low-hanging fruit. They're already starting to get their ladders and climb. Right. And do you see that much in painting? I feel like most no, painting I think painting, tie their own like, shoes, much less. I love working with painters. But because the 
because painters are like 30 years behind a lot of the other trades, as far as I'm yeah. concerned, from like a professionalization standpoint, yeah. they're really immature when it comes to marketing. So yeah. if you went and looked at the HVAC or the plumbers or the garage door, they wouldn't even blink an eye to spend eight to 15% on their marketing. And they also have much more like, this is what's very frustrating to me is like, well, if you're going to try to grow fast, if you're in those markets, they understand they might even spend 20% of their gross on marketing. Yeah. Like these things, I mean, I just probably in your podcast here, we got two people that just fell out of their chair to even think about spending 20% of their gross out marketing. Right. But these More industries, than that. Yeah. yeah, exactly. These industries sort of understand this. So it can be really frustrating when people are spending just a couple percent, you know, or maybe nothing almost, right? To get to 800,000 or 600,000 or wherever they got to. So I know some well, what comes first, the, the chicken or the egg in this case? Because I feel like the reason that those more mature industries can afford that growth spend is that the consumers expect a professional service, right? And the, the charge rate reflects that you're not finding a chuck in a truck plumber to come out. You're finding a phenomenal experience of a plumber, but he's going to charge $250 an hour. Yep. And that, that allows this more mature business model in painting. It doesn't feel like we're there. And how do we get yep. there? I'm not sure we do. I think to your point, I think the differentiation between a truck and a truck for a plumber and a truck and a truck for a painter is not nearly as big. What you're going to get at the end of the day is not as much different because if your plumbing's leaking, you don't have time for someone who doesn't answer their phone, who doesn't come, who doesn't, right? Like you have an emergency. And so this is very different than paint, which generally doesn't have emergencies. No and paint emergencies. I think the other thing is you can redo paint easily. That's totally different if you're an electrician or a plumber yeah. or a, where it's like there could be devastating effects if you do something wrong. There are some underlying fundamentals to the urgency as well as the consequences of misinstallation. Right. That don't tie over directly to painting. When their we, cogs look so different. I think that's probably something you and I have talked about before. In the HVAC business, it's like 15% as parts. And then you've got 30% that you're spending on labor in the truck, you know, and you've got a lot of meat left on that bone or it's not even 30%. I'm sorry. I'm misquoting because, you know, if you had a technician that did a million dollars a year, you're not spending 300,000 on his labor in his truck. Right. Right. That so like quite a bit. Right, right. So now let's say your cogs are only at 30% overall. You have 70% gross. Margin. And now all of a sudden, you know, it doesn't sound so crazy to spend 15% on marketing. Right. The painters always want to be plumbers and electricians, and I don't know if we ever will be. <laughs> I think a certain amount of the market won't ever, if you're asking me, hey, Nate, 20 years from now, are there still going to be a lot of painters under a million dollars? My answer is yes. Okay. So it's different than plumbing and heating and air conditioning and that, those yeah. things that way. Well, because- most of those went out of business in a lot of markets. Will there be more painting companies over a million dollars? Yeah. Adjusted for inflation. Yeah, so because not just, not just as, because of inflation. Yeah, not just because of inflation. Yes, because more consumers want a professional experience. Yeah. Right. And I also think the amount of people who run businesses under a million who actually enjoy what they're doing is not high. Right. I think so. I think that's also you think the important. age of martyrdom is coming to an end. <laughs> I don't know about that. That's a different kind of the age of uh, self-sacrificial Protestant work ethic. Yeah, I understand uh, where you're going with it. Um, the farmers. Yes, I do actually. Yeah, I think so too. Mm -hmm. I don't think millennials are getting into painting to just work themselves to a bone and be tired. 
and if they're going to want to do it. Maybe it's Gen Z, maybe it's a It's not just that. I think that they would view other professions as much better ways to do that. So they would yeah. be getting into the social services. They're getting into, you know, religion or into nonprofits, you know, and yeah. uh, teaching, you know, like these are the things that if, hey, if you want to, if you're looking at, you know, you view yourself as a martyr, these are the areas that are popular now. They, they would sort of yeah. laugh at you like, well, you're not a martyr. Like you could go do something else. If you, you, why are you, you know, no one's taking pity on you because you are painting. What has been successful for Paris painting year over year? So you got involved with us in 2013, I believe. And mm-hmm. since that point for the better part of 10 years have been the primary marketing guy, either as a vendor or now uh, on staff. What has worked throughout the years as you've seen the economy change and as the scale of Paris painting change? I think one thing that's happened in the last year, particularly because the market's constricting, at least it feels like it is to me and to many of our partners, mm-hmm. is that we have tried a lot more hustle techniques, right? So now all of a sudden, what I mean by hustle techniques is like, okay, we're into door knocking. We never did that or very little. I know you did a little bit, but we right. didn't do very much of that. Right. Um, Not at scale. Did. I mean, the right. scale was a couple hundred thousand dollar business at that point. Yeah. Now our we've knocked over 10,000. I don't even know. It's thousands and thousands this and year? thousands of homes over the last year. Yeah. Wow. Um, we started door knocking last July. As you right. saw the market start to shift. Is that what you're saying? Right. Okay. So I think looking at that, looking at lead farms. So like historically, Paris really hasn't been very involved in the Angie's home advisors, uh, you know, network, so on and so forth. We've used those more the last couple of years. We have done much more chasing our past customers and we've done more, you know, we built incentives for our project managers. If they get a lead when they're out in the field, give them a certain amount of money or our sales Mm -hmm. reps, we give them a certain amount of money if they get a lead in the field. And all this to tell you, like, I think we've done so much more of that over the last year, but the reality is, is most of those efforts get us low quality leads. You're not asking me a question, but I'll answer this question this yeah. way, which is like, what would I want to tell myself 18 months ago? Yeah. What I'd want to tell myself 18 months ago is you can do hustle stuff. And that feels especially good if you have an integrator or president in your company, because they love that stuff. Like it just jazzes them up. They're like, yes, we're hustling. Yeah. But if you really dive into the data, you'll realize almost across the board, those things get us low quality leads. Even our past customers, if we push into them, Mm. you know, we're actively calling them, we're actively, you know, we're just, we're doing all kinds of things to generate more. Our success rates in those areas go down. And so I think it's because you're pushing against the market. The market's telling you there's not as much demand for your product and service right now. Yeah. And you're saying, hell with that. I'm going to take control of this. Well, you can a little bit. And I, I, I'll, me against the stream. Is that what yep. you're saying? And those, you know, so now all of a sudden your success rate goes down five, 10 points. Hmm. And you guys know, for those of you that have over a million dollar businesses, that's catastrophic, right? Because now all of a sudden you got to have so many more sales staff, so much, you got to buy so many more leads mm-hmm. and it's, and, and then it gets to be a self-fulfilling prophecy basically, because now it's like, well, now we got a real, you know? Yeah. So I think if I could go back 18 months ago, I'd say, Hey, do some of that. Yeah. But the reality is we need to just hunker down and spend more because demands change for our product or service. Mm-hmm. And we don't want to compromise on this idea of like, well, we could fix this by our hustle. I don't believe that. How long does this last? How long is the market going to be this way? Who knows? Like if you knew that 
I do think there's a few things we can know. Like, let me ask you a question. Yeah. Did more people paint their houses in 2020, 2021 than like sort of a normal demand year? Yes. Okay. Would that at some point then create the possibility of some kind of vacuum? Because right. people you moved pull decisions up demand up. from subsequent years that was scheduled right. to happen, but then got pulled up. Yeah. Right. Let me ask you another question. Credit card debt consumer debt in the United States, has that been going up over the last 18 months? Yes. A lot, right? Like I think we're at some of the highest we've been in over 10 years. Does that affect people's desire, you know, ability to spend money on things that aren't necessary? Yes. Those are factual. All right. The third factual, do we have, you know, inflation and has our wages matched you know, wage increases matched inflation. The answer, of course, is no. I know. I hate all these rhetorical yeah, questions. Yeah, yes and no. Yep. So I'm not an economist, but if those questions are answered in those ways, it's like, how could it not be? Like, yeah. I guess it would be my answer to that. Like, of course, it's going to change. Like, we moved up demand because of COVID, right? Like, people did painting projects probably quicker in many cases than they were going to because they were spending more time at home. We have less money at people's disposal because they have more consumer debt than they've had in a long time. And the money that they do have isn't going as far because we have inflation. Yeah. Like, of course. It, I mean, now every market's a little different. I, we notice that some markets are having a harder time than others. Some seemingly aren't, haven't moved that much. Why do we have inflation? <laughs> no, I'm not going to answer that. But one thing I do want to tell you, just going on this, because one question people might ask is like, how do I know if my market is you know, up or down, there's a really easy way to figure that out. Look at your year over year, repeat referral numbers, things like that. Things that seemingly aren't as affected by how much you're marketing. And if those numbers are down, that's a clear indication. Yeah. Same thing. Look at your search demand. If, you, if you're using, you know, Google Analytics and pay-per-click, you can see how many people are searching for terms compared to a year ago. That's what's a good the, What's the biggest strategic and then tactical advice that we're giving out right now? The partnerships the biggest strategic advice that we're giving out i mean i don't think that's really changed like focus on the numbers we're metric oriented marketers at olive so we want to focus on of course everybody focuses on cost per lead but that's sort of like the sexy number um the real numbers are that average job size and the success rate mm -hmm. and then the percentage on gross right like how much are you how many dollars did you put mm -hmm. in compared to how many did you get out yeah. Right. And then we make all of our marketing decisions based on those numbers. I don't know if that's the answer you wanted because that might have been too that's broad. <laughs> Do you th so you started flyer delivery with us. Do you think Paris Painting could have succeeded without flyers being our primary marketing source for the last 10 years? Yes, but I think it would have been more challenging. I think it's a good tool to position you as local and present. And it feels different when you have a flyer hanging on your door than if you have a mailer that comes in the mail. People let want to buy from a company that they think is on their block or yeah. working with one of their neighbors. So hmm. I think it's a good tool that way. It could have been done, but it would have been more expensive. Yeah, I'm pretty cheap, aren't I? <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't actually think you're cheap. <laughs> no, you, got, you have to spend money and make money. I think it's easy to save money in business if you're not trying to grow fast. If you're yeah. trying to grow fast, then my actual visceral reaction, if I have a an integrator that's pushing on me to do both of those things, save money and grow yeah. fast, my yeah. reaction is you are insane.
Yeah. <laughs> like those I things do not cake. go together. I want to eat it. A lot of times that's also why it's hard to answer questions when people are like, how much should I be spending on marketing? Well, how fast are you trying to grow? How long are you in a business? How happy are your customers? What kind of market are you in? Like there's yeah, what's a million your answers. What's your, what's your sales skill? Yeah, exactly. I can give broad answers if you want them, but that doesn't mean anything necessarily. I could say something sure. probably three to 10%, depending on all those variables. Not many painters are going to be spending more than 10% of gross, even if they're trying to grow fast because of the marketplace we're in. What is the worst marketing decision you've made in the last five years? Working with Brad, Brad. <laughs> I'll cut that out. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's definitely one of the worst. I think trusting marketing decisions to marketing companies. We all have these companies that we come in contact with and they make big promises and they have what seems like everything you need to solve all your problems. I've watched many people be disillusioned by that. I think if you're looking for a quick, easy fix, it's probably just not there. And I've gone for that a few times too. As a bigger company, we've done that too. And mm -hmm. usually we've sort of regretted that. Like we need to just it's kind of the ox metaphor, honestly, is like, yeah. if you're looking for something quick, easy in marketing, I'm not sure it exists. With our partners, we view this as two oxen that- um, Yoke together. Yoke together, exactly. And- To plow the field. Yeah, and it's not easy and you're gonna get muddy. Yep. And if you're looking for something in marketing that's not like that, I don't think it exists. Well, like, they will certainly take your money. They'll take your money and, like and I'm not sure that they're doing anything and... wrong either. I guess I want to say that is like, yeah. they're selling what people want, but I'm not sure it's actually what's going to happen. Or magic diet pills. Right. So and sometimes it does work too. Like, you know, magic diet pills work sometimes too. <laughs> yeah. The other thing I would say about that is putting too much money into things I can't control. So as yeah. you scale a painting business, you need to have controllable marketing tools. There are many tools out there that are not controllable, right? Your repeat referral, not very controllable. SEO. Now that is interesting that as a marketer, you prefer to not have too much repeat and referral. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So I don't want to have more than 40% of my leads come from any source, but, but particularly free. that why, why source. Why you just love that? because I can't turn it up or down. And if demand goes down, I have no control over it at all. And we have several partners in this situation, actually. They, they're they very proud. They get to 800,000. They've never yeah. spent a dollar on marketing. I, I like, love that story too, but it's yeah. very vulnerable. It's vulnerable to the long-term stability. Right. It's like saying I have one super sub who does 50% of my work, 49% of my work. Right. That's great until it's not. It's a very nice way to run a lifestyle business. It's but even it worse than that though, because that could work for decades and you yeah. could actually grow. Okay. I can tell you for a fact, you can't scale your business doing that, you know, painting. Sure. So, that, so now you're talking about, do we want to grow it and scale it to a size that can inherently have more infrastructure and redundancy? Right. Or are we just trying to squeeze the lemon and stay, keep where it is right now and hope that the wheels keep turning? How do we as a society balance justice and mercy? And which of the <laughs> two is more important? We live in a really penal society, in my opinion. I, I mean, I grew up in a, a poor neighborhood. You know, most people call it a poor neighborhood, I guess. I mean, it's in the United States, but poor for the United States, right? Even the, the place I live now, one, I think it's one in nine adult males are either on probation or in jail. 
I don't know that, especially for people who don't live in a poor neighborhood, they just don't really even understand how many people are affected at any given moment by sort of this extraordinary criminal justice system that we have in the United States. That's very different than the rest of the first world. As someone who's been, you know, in my early young, in my teens and early twenties, most years I was getting pulled over and stopped by the police like every week. You know, I've had hundreds of encounters with the police now. You know, not as much as I've been older, but I'm saying like in my life, why, why am I answering this question this way? Well, because I think justice is such an interesting idea. My hope in justice is low is probably the answer I want to give to this. Generally, our criminal justice system is built for people who have resources and those that don't, I don't know that they have outcomes the way that people would call like justice. I think if you asked a hundred Americans, do how many resources you have, does that drastically affect your outcomes in the criminal justice system? And virtually everybody would answer that question, yes. Well, then how could we think of it as sort of just? Clearly it's not. If how many resources you have has a huge impact on the outcomes, clearly that's different. I think the other part of the, the justice part of it is you could ask another question, which is, are some places in any city or area more policed than others? And the answer is always yes. Well, then wouldn't they also have more criminals? Because those are the people who are getting arrested and charged. And maybe a more personal way is, wouldn't Nate Streeter have a lot more criminal activity because he was pulled over by the police once or twice a week throughout his you know, mm -hmm. teens and 20s? Does that mean I'm more of a criminal than... Right. somebody else that works here at Olive? Or does that have to do with the fact of the activity? I think when we think about justice, we have to sort of recognize that in the context of the country we live, all of these things are part of that reality. Now, I want to say something that's important with that. Do I think that we have some of the best in the world? Well, sort of, <laughs> right? I think there are things about our country's criminal justice system that are sort of wonderful. The fact that maybe you could even have a day in court, I suppose, is at least some level wonderful, at least in, the, in history. I think that's great. I just don't have a lot of faith in the idea of justice on earth. I guess that's what, the way I'll say it, because I just don't see it working like that at all. It doesn't have anything to do with laws. There's a difference between a justice system and a legal system. Drug use is pretty equal among zip codes. It doesn't, it's like inner city people use drugs more than suburban people or anything. So like many of these things that as a society we've determined are not great, even guns. I mean, I don't want to go into something too controversial, but it's sort of funny to me that somebody in my neighborhood who has a gun is immediately a thug, but you could drive into any suburb and virtually all of them have guns and might even be aggressive with their gun, depending on the circumstance. <laughs> but would be viewed very differently that they were protecting their house or something. Whereas immediately anybody with a gun in my neighborhood, regardless of the circumstances, would be labeled completely differently. The assumptions would be completely different immediately. Well, what are your thoughts on mercy? That's kind of the counterbalance to justice. This is sort of the downside of a very highly Puritan society is that we're very penal. Like I mentioned before, Americans are not good at mercy. I guess I'll say that. Americans are not good at mercy. It's part of what makes us wonderful that we, we have this idea that we earn what we have. You are an outcome of your actions. That also creates this extraordinary place of with little grace, with little mercy. It makes humans unbalanced. So I think my theology is that humans are at their best when there's this mix. You, you need equal parts of recognizing that you're extraordinarily sinful and 
terrible and equal parts of like, I'm extraordinarily valuable and unique. As soon as you get those out of too much out of balance, like either you think you're more valuable or you think you're too sinful, either one creates havoc on a society. If you ask me like, is Jason Paris evil? Yeah. Is he oh, no. an angel? Yeah. Like, I think oh, like oh. to me, that juxtaposition is important at what moment? Like he's yeah. capable of all those things all the time. To me, one of the things I like in the, in the New Testament is sort of this constant redirection that Jesus has in this way of like, why are you caring so much about other people's sin? You got a lot of it. You don't need to be worried about that too much. And I think that sort of creates this humility that's important, which will lead to grace. Because when you sort of recognize yourself, how terrible you are and what you're capable of, it, it sort of is um, immediately going to create grace around you. You're going to look at others and be more gracious. Even when you think about, even with their sin, the way you'd, your attitude towards it would be very different because you're like, oh yeah, you know, Jason's really screwing up like this, but I screw up with that too. I wonder maybe I can help him with that. Or you see what I'm saying? Like your attitude totally yeah. changes, but you're not going to find that in very many churches in my mind. Churches are places for self-righteous people. Oh, As no. a, <laughs> I go to a church every week, so I'm not saying don't go to church, but I'm just saying it's just like the New Testament, right? The bad guys were generally the religious people. And that's because they're self-righteous. Oh, if no. you're self-righteous, if you go back to what I just said, the self-righteous are the hardest people in that equation because they don't think they need the other side of it at all. How do you be gracious? How do you accept grace? You can't accept grace. You can't give grace. Grace isn't needed, evidently. So now we only have justice and no mercy. <sighs> Bingo. But there's no justice. Equity versus equality. I struggle with this. Um, I've changed my mind about this a lot as I've gotten older. Man, isn't the United States such a frustrating place to live with this question? In my mind, yeah. because in some ways it is the best place in the world to live. I know. Um, you crazy. have opportunities and all these first generation immigrants around me are so grateful and like are just like, Nate, can you believe what we have here? And look what I've done. Some of Leah and my best friends, what, what their parents, because generally they're second generation immigrants, uh, what their parents have done is an extraordinary thing, like just mind boggling, maybe could not happen in any other country in the world. With that said, we also live in this sort of extraordinary place where if you ask people, why do you live where you live? And often part of that answer is they want to send their kids to a specific school district or they want their kids to interact with specific people. Well, clearly we're trying to give our kids, I don't want to say an advantage, but all the opportunities they possibly could have. And clearly, if you ask that question from a logic standpoint, well, what comes from that is, well, are some kids going to have less opportunities than your kids? The answer to that question, they'd at least hope will be yes. Mm -hmm. Well, clearly we don't have equity then. We don't. It's a myth. That's, I think, the hard part for me is the kids in my neighborhood do not have the same opportunities under any circumstance that kids in the suburbs have. You don't pick your parents. You know, you don't generally pick where you grow up. I know it's popular to point at the three out of a uh, hundred that break out of that. I, I just love that. Like, <laughs> there you go. They want to pick the one person that they know that did this. And I believe that those stories are true. But I can tell you, if you went through all the friends that I grew up with, Jason, their outcomes are exactly what you'd expect. And they have nothing to do with their ability, their smartness. The correlation between hard work and success is so small. The reality of it is when you ask people how they got their jobs, you'll find this out to be the case. Many, many people, when you ask them how they got the job that they have, they will say, well, I knew someone 
or my friend worked there, or just a huge percentage of people, these are the cases, something like that helped them, right? And so we sort of start recognizing like, oh, all these social, or even the college you go to, right? It's not what you learn there. This is a social club you've entered. You're a U of M graduate. That's a huge social club and lots of people care about it. But you get to work with a lot of entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs like to point to how hard they worked and how they pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. And how does that make you feel or, or interpret that? Of like, isn't it fun to just look at the few that did pull themselves up by their bootstraps and, and work their way out of the more challenging circumstances that was their environment? Isn't it fun to do that? I love it. Like entrepreneurs are my favorite people. Uh, my grandma says it's not a career choice. It's mental illness. Uh, and you <laughs> Entrepreneurism know, is mental illness. I like that. Yeah. So I think what percentage of people are truly entrepreneurs? Very small percentage, like definitely under 1% in my mind. We have a lot of people who are self-employed, truly entrepreneurial people, people who, you know, you've met them, uh, Jason. I mean, I, you know it because you have it too. Like they can't stop trying you to innovate things, build yeah. things. Like they always, like everything they look around, they're trying to make something better. And yeah. that group of people, um, is such a small percentage, but they're such an extraordinarily powerful group. And I agree with you. Often those are the percentage that rise into that three out of a hundred that it doesn't matter where they were born necessarily. But I should tell you my neighbor across the alley, he actually just moved. He's one of the more extraordinary human beings I've met, does all kinds of illegal things, makes almost all of his money with it in doing illegal things. Very entrepreneurial. Could he given different circumstances, you know, with the same person, have had a completely different trajectory. Absolutely. Like he probably would have been extraordinarily wealthy and had big businesses. And so instead he's, he's doing what he's doing. What religion is the correct religion? So I think the way I want to answer that is for me, you know, I had a real, what I would call real religious experience when I was 15. And I really believe God, the Christian God, you know, saved me from my sin. And that's the experience I had. I 100% believe it was real and that it has affected me from that moment forward in positive ways. I believe in it and I believe in its power to affect others as well. With that said, I think it would be sort of extraordinary for me to make some comment that I've understood it completely and that the way that I see it is the only way. It seems like the Bible shows us that that's an extraordinary way to look at the world <laughs> because they all didn't know that Jesus was the son of God, for instance, and they were probably more religious. Many of the Pharisees and Sadducees were more religious than most of the religious people in our country. It seems sort of presumptuous and ridiculous for me to make some kind of statement that I understand all this completely. I remember being in a systematic theology class, you know, systematic theology 101. Any of you guys went to Christian colleges. I got, I got my degree right there. Uh, this is a class you all took. And I remember one of my professors saying, I'm confident we're going to get to heaven and there's going to be many things in this class that we misunderstood. And I was flabbergasted when he said that. In fact, I was frustrated for weeks because this class was like, who is God? What is the Bible? Who is Jesus? Like the most basic that any Christian religion would like 100% agree on, right? Is systematic theology one-on-one. -on -one. So for a professor to be like, I'm confident that we're going to get to heaven and, and realize we misunderstood this. Now in hindsight, you know, 20 years later, I realized, oh, he's right. I'm confident that I misunderstood these things. So I'm answering your question in a roundabout way. But what I'm really trying to say is 
it would be really presumptuous for me to say something that would indicate that I understand all of this perfectly. What I can tell you is what's happened to me and how it's affected my life and that I believe it's real. Can democracy work in every culture? So democracy, the idea of it, it has a lot of good principles, but in practice, what it actually looks like is an extraordinarily different thing. In an ideal setting, democracy is really about participation, but it's not. Clearly in the United States, very few people actually participate uh. with our democracy. At the basic level, depending on where you live, we live in Minnesota, so 60%, and we're really proud of that, that 60% of people who could vote participate in our democracy. But is that really participation? Clearly, I think if we asked enough questions, we'd realize that's not participating in the democracy very much. How many people participate in the democracy greater than that? Like, And that's not ideal for a country to have such little participation. When you say democracy, what do you mean? Because in, the Missis in, in a state like Mississippi, very few people are participating. So are we talking about participating in decisions that affect the people that they're bestowed upon. That's the idea of democracy, right? Is I'm participating in decisions that are made from above. And I think this goes into exactly why unions and other places have failed too in our country. The idea of unions is wonderful. In fact, I think I don't think it's extraordinary to say unions made our country great, but they worked because they did that, which is people participated in decisions that were made above them. And then the more separation they had, they trusted very specific people and they had less participation and boom, now we've got concentrated power and we've got all kinds of the problems we see in our country with unions. So it's the same thing. What brand of democracy are you talking about, Jason? The democracy we have in the United States, which is for the most part, not very high participation you sort of get the outcomes you have then, right? Which is that the oligarchy is making most of the decisions. And I think the middle class is fine with that as long as it doesn't push too hard. But of course, we've seen in our country the last 40, 50 years, we're not so sure about this anymore. Like it's pushing too hard on the middle class. So I suppose some might say we're right for a revolution. Participation isn't there. And I, I do think that a democracy opens up the opportunity for a revolution. So perhaps that's one of the good outcomes of a democracy, right? Is you get these cycles of potential revolution. To say it's it's representative requires participation. That requires action from all of us. That is challenging. And it also, you have to recognize that the very people that we elect in this scenario don't benefit from our participation. In fact, politicians in almost every sense don't want us to participate in the democracy. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but it's true. It's much easier to control a smaller group of people participating than the larger they get. It doesn't matter, Republicans, Democrats, any political organization, they would actually prefer much less participation. So this so is saying, the irony of the equation too. Is democracy the best way to govern people? I think whatever you could get for the most people to participate in the decisions that were made above them, I think that would be the best. That could happen in a lot of different ways. If they all trust the king, wholeheartedly and they're participating mm -hmm. in his actions that doesn't necessarily look like a democracy but they might be highly participatory and so their level of engagement is probably the way i would answer the question of like is this good for society pretty good when you have marcus aurelius not, <laughs> not very good when you have nero <laughs> right 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 why do we dream I like this question. I mean, I don't think humans know this exactly. So I guess everything I'm about to say is just for fun. <laughs> this is all for fun. Yeah, we <laughs> we don't really know what happens inside of our brains. This is to me, this is something we're going to look back a couple hundred years from now and be like, they didn't know what was happening inside their bodies or brains at all. That's crazy. <laughs>
but clearly it has something to do with us processing our feelings, our emotions, our experiences. It's something to do with our brain, right? Like we know this, but what's happening? I don't know exactly. I think it's probably an extraordinary thing. One that's really important that I'm sure we're going to figure out and be able to hack somehow, right? I can tell you for me, I need, it's good for me to get a certain amount of sleep each night. <laughs> you know that it feels good. What do you like about the Paris painting logo? And why have we not changed it? I like the colors. A gray and something bright is smart for a painting company. I like in general that we use color in an understated way. (laughs) This example is not the best, but a good way to think about our yard sign is that actually the canvas of your yard sign is a giant lawn. So the way that that would work is actually that it's actually a small amount of meta. I don't know if that makes sense, but um, the yard sign is within the framing of a, of a yard. Don't forget that when you're crafting your yard sign. Right. In fact, I wouldn't mind taking our phone number off the yard sign. And I even recommended that to one of our partners who had a little younger demographic than we do in Minnesota here that I don't think, I think it's completely superfluous. So those are some things. What I don't like about it is the same thing I mentioned to you when I, when we evaluate any ad that includes pictures and text, good way, you know, you use your five second or a lot of people call it a one or two second rule now. It's like, what do you get from it? And just briefly, if you just look at it, right. And on social, it'd be like half a second or less. Beyond that is take all the words off and what does it communicate? Mm -hmm. A good logo, if you took all the words off, what does it communicate? I think Paris's logo communicates something. Painting, maybe not so much. So I think Mm -hmm. that's probably the weakness of our logo, but it definitely communicates this idea of like, oh, I want a house like that. Here's these two gray houses. Here's an orange one that looks nicer, more professional maybe even. It's really hard to do logos that are about painting. Most of our partners, man, I'm going to get in trouble for all this, but I'll just say it. Incorporating paintbrushes, paint rollers, paint, paint swatches. Those are maybe my least favorite ones. I think it's really hard to do it well. And I might even recommend not to try to because it looks messy a lot of times. So I like Paris's logo too, because it doesn't look messy. See a lot of logos with dripping paint off of a That's not something I would want. But, but by the way, like, do I think you could be a $10 million painting company with a logo with painting drip? Yes. Like, I don't think those are hugely important. I do think something simple is important so that people have some recognition of it. Well, thanks for being here, Nate. You are truly a marvelous mind. We're very fortunate to have you here at All Holdings. You are instrumental to the growth of Paris painting. Thank you so much for coming on today and, and sharing some of your wisdom and insight. Hey, thanks, man. I don't know about any of that. I'm happy to be here and I feel lucky to work with a group of entrepreneurs uh, like Olive and like our partners. That is something that gives me life every day is to see people who are pushing and who won't take no for an answer and who are going to sort of yoke up, right? Like we talk about here. That That's what I love about working here. So yeah, it's a special group. You're a part of yeah. it. Thanks, Nate. Yeah, thank you. Future of Olive is bright. 